0: Well, first of all, I'll allow me to express the appreciation of my, my family for uh, recognizing my late father this way. Uh, I apologize for us being late, but there's um, uh, my wife's father passed away last week, and we have just come straight from the funeral service. And as a matter of fact, we're going to have to gather the family afterwards. But we wanted to uh, at least to come here and to thank you very much for for this recognition. Um, I've been asked to speak very briefly about uh, my father's story and the walkout of 1949 and the, the Guam Organic Act. And so I'll, I'll try to relate to you very briefly, but in, in describing it, I, uh, I, want, I hope you will receive it as the way my father would always explained to me: as it's less of a journey of one man, but also a, a story about a rise of political consciousness of the Chamorro people. And so my father was born in the early part of the 20th century. And so I'll ask you to think back to Guam in the 1930s uh, when uh, it was primarily agricultural, uh, still isolated due to the security restrictions uh, that prohibited influx of people and capital. Uh, The government was virtually uh, a military dictatorship with all powers the executive, traditional, legislative in the hands of the Naval government. And the people were not citizens. And uh, because it was governed uh, by the Navy, which of the two armed services at the time because it was more elitist was was historically more racist. A lot of that was reflected in the policy as well. One of which was is that education only went up to the ninth grade for the natives. And so my father who was considered to be a promising student went up to the ninth grade but wanted to get a full high school diploma. And so he a Navy Freighter in the 1930s to go join his brother who years earlier had left Guam to work in the shipyards at Pearl Harbor, and to there get his high school diploma. And he has recounted to me was a great cultural shock. I mean, he talked to me about being amazed by things like the high school marching band. But perhaps a more profound impact it had on the time was seeing people of color, particularly Pacific Islanders of color, in positions of authority. They were the policemen, they were the judges, they were not only working in government offices, but they were in charge of government offices. And he would contrast it to his experience uh, in his home island of Guam. Uh, and where, you know, depending on the vagaries of the government of the day, you'd uh, whistling be banned, or you'd have to salute marines, or even if you were a civilian, and had to be very deferential uh, for all sorts of social uh, reasons there. So in that experience was part of his own rise of consciousness and perceiving the sort of contrast between the situation at home and in a more democratic society, even, even uh, uh Hawaii as a territory. And so my father got his um, high school diploma in Hawaii and he stayed there and went to the University of Hawaii and got his undergraduate degree. And shortly afterwards got a job um, as an assistant police chemist for the Honolulu Police Department. And that's where he found himself when Pearl Harbor was attacked and Guam was evaded and World War II was, um, began. And like a lot of young men at this time, he immediately uh, went to join the service. You know, and because he came from Guam, the service he was most familiar with was the Navy. And but when he joined there, he found that while a lot of his fellow classmates, because of their college degrees, were being sent to Officer's Candidate uh, School as prospective uh, uh, officers, he was told that the only thing that he could uh, qualify for was to be a mess attendant, because at the time, tomorrows were classified along with African-Americans and Filipinos in the same category, and they were not allowed to serve in any other function than mess attendants. Now, mess attendants is, is still a valued way of serving your country, and a lot of tomorrow's serve that way, but to him it bothered him a great deal that Others of his of his same education, you know, were uh, were were being the, given the opportunity to officer's candidate school, and he was not because it was tomorrow. So he said goodbye to the navy and joined the army, and they sent him to officer's candidate school, for which he uh, graduated and, uh, and um, uh, was uh, got commissioned as a second lieutenant, and uh, actually became an instructor at the officer's candidate school because you know they were impressed with this cadet Sue. and so. He tried to get uh, a part of the forces that were involved in the liberation of Guam, but he was that was reserved for Admiral uh, Nimitz's Central Pacific Command, and he got scooped up as he explained, along with scores and hundreds of other second lieutenants, to go serve Douglas MacArthur in the Southwest Pacific, and so he did a good part of the war out in Australia. Um, but he served uh, during the war and then uh, retired, and uh, came back to Guam and started a family and because he was, uh, in part because of his, his service, there were only like three general officers in the war, um, and he was the only one from the Army, one from the Army Air Corps, one from the, from the, uh, from the Marines. Uh, he was you know, encouraged to run for the Guam Congress, which was an advisory body. It had all of the imperture of a legislative body, but really had no authority whatsoever at all. And this is in the late 1940s. Now, at the time, though, keep in mind, having fought in the war for democracy and freedom, it was very apparent to him that as the naval government was reestablished, you were reestablishing circumstances where there was no democracy, there was no freedom, there was no citizenship. And this sort of perspective occurred not just to him, although he was a, a leading voice, but on some level to to a lot of other tomorrow leaders of the time. And so he, he and others started thinking that we've got to do something about this. But it occurred to him that whatever they do in Guam, it's not gonna matter if no one finds out. So what it was, the first thing he did was, he was that they were on at the time, um, a reporter from the UPI and the Associated Press, and they're there for some other post-war story. And he told them, you know, this situation cannot stand. We're gonna do something. I don't know what, but we're gonna do something. But if we do, we do something here, can we like send you the story? I said, yeah, of course we did. You know, And so, as, as things proceeded, there, there was a, 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 a law, uh, an actual law that, that prohibited uh, American citizens from actually uh, engaging in business in private business on Guam, in part because their privilege status was meant to protect local entrepreneurs. And there was this one person who was, actually started a business and the Guam Congress subpoenaed him to account for what he was doing here. But he was close friends with the Naval Governor. At that time, we uh, were Charles Parnell, And Padal said, forget about it, don't pay attention to them. And then to them, the members of the Guam Congress, the Law Assembly, it showed how powerless and what a sort of a, a fake body they were, not a real legislative body. So they seriously burst into a man, staged a walkout in 1949. And my father sent word of this out to the, his contacts, the UPI and AP. Again, during this period. Now, at this time, they all came. with All came of came under a lot of pressure. And keep in mind, the naval government had all the power. At one point, they even privately threatened my father, who held a reserve commission in the army, that they would bring him back to uniform, which was not a minor thing, considering he was he had just gotten married. Uh, my uh, my sister Linda had born by them. You know, so a young man starting a family and being called back to the army was. It was not a minor thing, but they all, they all stuck together. They persevered. And I would actually also consider the time period that's taken in the country and the world at the time. 1949, the post-war war period as a time of rapid decolonization around the world. Uh, you know, a, at some point in you know, other colonies of France and Britain and elsewhere were moving towards uh, decolonization and supported by the US, in part because it was also the beginning of the height of the Cold War. But from the US standpoint, it was a conflict based on democracy and freedom. And so when this headlines flared across the country and it agreed around the world of revolting Guam and this, uh, and you know, uh, fight for democracy and that sort of thing, it was quite an embarrassment. And you also have to keep in mind also that what was being asked for local representative government, citizenship was not, a, not that a novel thing. Uh, people in other territories in the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico had gotten the same thing a half-century earlier. But this was denied for Guam because the naval government wanted to maintain control for reasons of national security. So when this became a very big political and public relations embarrassment, the, the Truman administration, to their credit, acted swiftly. And by executive order, transferred the uh, uh, Guam from the naval depart- uh, Navy Department to the Department of Interior and replace Panal and send out Carlton Skinner. Carlton Skinner of Skinner Plaza. So that's how we got our first civilian governor, Carlton Skinner. And then they also got the, the wheels motion, the Truman motion for a, finally a Guam Organic Act. Understand, Virgin Islands has an organic act, we Rico had an organic act. What, was, what we called the Organic Act in 1950 is just the Guam Organic Act in 1950. There have been many others like it for other territories. So that's how you got the first uh, uh, authorization for a really uh, for U.S. citizenship for a, uh, a democratic elected government, which in 1950 began with elected legislature, but later was the basis for an elected governor and uh, a an non-voting de- delegate to Congress. Um, but it was it, it was um, it was the beginnings of, of, um, of, a, of, a, of a struggle, which continues today for more civil rights democratic rights, and in, in some respect, de- uh, self-determination, and I'll go into that later there. Um, I'll give you a couple of postscripts, by the way, to having brushed through a large story here. Um, number one is, is that you know, by the time the Organic Act of 1950 passed Congress, my father had begun attending Georgetown Law School in the GI Bill. Uh, I still had not been born yet, but my brother Carl had been born by then. And uh, he was there, a young family. And then, so when it passed to the Congress and they were going to do the White House ceremony, they checked in who was in town, and my father was there. And so that's kind of, in part, how he ended up in the photograph, uh, with the uh, signed, Jefferson Truman signed the organic of 1950, because he was a recognized leader, and he was in town. So, but that being the case, that's that's one little postscript to take. The other one is, it was was traditional under the naval government days is that when a naval government left, he went around to each village, the local leaders brought out the villagers, say, goodbye, governor, thank you very much, bye-bye, get in this car, go to the next village, thank you, governor, goodbye, go to the car, you know, and go all the way around the island. And so in between the time uh, Skinner took to get out to Guam, they were organizing this to do it for uh, the last naval governor of Guam, Admiral Purnell. And, you know, I think in part this, what was pushed not just by the local Tomorrows, but also probably by the federal authorities who wanted to paper over this public relations disaster here. The one person they asked to escort him in the car representing the local people was my father, who he said, he really thinks it's a good idea. He says said, no, 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 Carlos, we gotta, you know, let's be friends because we're gonna move forward and we're getting what we want, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So, you know, my father got in the car and in the backseat with Albert Panel. And they went around the island, get the village, get out, get out by the governor. Thank you very much. Get in the car, go to the next village, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he used to tell me this was the longest road trip he ever's been in his life, <laughs> because in between those stops, nothing but stony silence between the two, you know. And uh, he, my father began issuing some pleasantries, but Pannell was not having any of it. And my father could understand because probably more than anybody else, my father was responsible for the end of his naval career. So that's, that's the one funny poster for this here. Um, I want, want to say just a couple of things about the organic in 1950. And one of the things I should, I, should point out and maybe, I should point out by now is, is what it is not. And over the intervening decades, quite often it's been referred to as an act of self-determination. Uh, more recently, a few years ago, an outgoing uh, commander of Naval Forces, Mariana's name, Admiral Bouchon, and its parting shot, referred to as an act of self-determination. Now maybe, Ahmad Shah may be forgiven for his ignorance because he was only here for three years. But then this sort of thing got ached and echoed in a, in a column by Lee Weber in the Pacific Daily News. And Weber, who's been here for several decades, has no such excuse, so he was engaged in sort of crass propaganda. Um, but, and it was, so, it was so bad that my brother, and my sister, and myself, uh, on behalf of my late father, uh, wrote a, uh, an editorial rebutting uh, a league records assertion. And one of the ways we explained it was a story uh, my father used to tell us about that whole issue about the organic act and, it, and any allusions to self-determination. And he, and he explained to us that when you're in a desert and you're dying of thirst, and someone offers you a glass of water, and you choose to accept that glass of water, that's not an act of self-determination. That's an act of survival. So the struggle for citizenship, the struggle for any form of elected local self-government, any form of even non-voting of representation in the Congress, none of that is self-determination. That's a struggle for survival within a colonial system we live under at this day. We're ruled by a president we don't elect, a Congress we have no vote in, and judges for whom are, le- are decided by the president we don't elect in the Congress we have no vote in. So, one of my father's dreams though, as he said publicly, he had hoped to live long enough to see an actual exercise of self-determination by the Chamorro people. Unfortunately, he, that was not to be. He passed away at the ripe old age of 92, but he would be very pleased to see that struggle for a right to self-determination continue to this day. He would be very gratified he is, as honored he was for the recognition given this meeting, he would be even more gratified that you have not given up the struggle. And as daunting the odds may seem now, you know, uh, considering the Trump administration and all the other legal challenges here, um, I think it's, it, it behooves all of us to remember what it would be like to be a young tomorrow in your 20s, starting a family in 1949, in an isolated island, with the naval government having all the power. And what it took him and? And he often points to and his colleagues at the time to do to stage that walk out. He also reminded me that you know some of them took some leadership of pushing them along. But understand, not every one of them had my father's experience of seeing the world and, and seeing the conscious and understanding the concept. But they all understood something was wrong. And to those who had not my father's experience, my father always thought very respectfully of them. However reluctant they were, to the actually have the courage to do it. Because in their hearts, they recognized what was right. So again, um, uh, my apologies, and then, for being late. And my apologies for leaving, like, right now, because we have to join family members. But this is, we had other family obligations. But on behalf of uh, the family of the late Carlos B. Titan, thank you very much for this recognition. And thank you all for <clears throat> continuing this work Thank you.